Great news, my cruciferous cousins. Plant Strong Foods is hosting a March Madness Meals and Minutes sale. Visit plantstrong.com and save up to 30% on every one of our ready-to-eat chilies and stews. It is the perfect time to stock up on these heat-and-eat tasty meal solutions. Having a stash in your pantry means you're never more than 90 seconds away from a satisfying meal. The sale runs through March 17th while supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. Hey, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I want you to know that I'm coming along with my, my broken foot. The stitches came out on Tuesday. I started swimming again, and um, I feel like I've really gotten over the hump with, uh, with this broken foot. I'm going to have to be... Um, on crutches uh, or on a little stroller for another month as I'm keeping weight off it, but things are, uh, things are looking good. This episode is going to be a doozy. If you're getting ready to pop an antacid or take a swig of your favorite mouthwash, wait. Hold up just a moment with me. Here's why. If you listened to last week's episode of the Plant Strong Podcast with my father, you know he is a fanatic about boosting your nitric oxide in order to basically bump up the production of your healthy endothelial cells. Why? What exactly is this miracle molecule? It may be new to you, but know this. Our body's ability to produce nitric oxide is paramount to staving off killers like stroke, heart disease, and other vascular complications like men, erectile dysfunction. Today, I take a deep dive on the subject of nitric oxide with the preeminent expert on the subject and the author of The Nitric Oxide Solution, Dr. Nathan Bryan. My father has followed his work, and I knew that I had to have him on the show to open your eyes and mine on what seems like a very complex topic. Fortunately, we break it down into interesting and actionable takeaways for you. What is nitric oxide? And no, it's not the laughing gas that you get at the dentist's office. What happens to our body's ability to create nitric oxide? And why does it diminish as we age? What foods can we eat to pump up the production of this magic molecule? And... Why do so many common over-the-counter products like mouthwash, antacids, and antibiotics crush our body's ability to produce nitric oxide? As Dr. Nathan Bryant says, chronic diseases is caused by two things and two things only. One, the body missing something that it needs, or two, it's exposed to something that it doesn't need. Today, we want to give you what your body needs. So listen in closely and say Y-E-S, yes, to N-O, nitric oxide. Side note here, the initial interview took place at my office in February prior to COVID-19. Since then, there has been a tremendous amount of research into the subject of nitric oxide in preventing and treating the coronavirus especially in the African-American population who, as the data show, are the most vulnerable. You'll want to stick around for the quick bonus segment at the end 
as I caught up with Dr. Brian just last week via Zoom. Enjoy. If you want to learn more about the wonders of nitric oxide and all things plant-based, I invite you to join us for our upcoming Plant Stock 2020 weekend, where my father will be giving his paramount lecture on preventing and reversing heart disease. This online learning weekend is packed with science and practical application, and it's a chance for the whole household to learn together. Visit plantstock2020.com today to learn more. All right, I am here with Dr. Nathan Bryan. Uh, Nathan and I, um, we actually got to know each other or have got to know each other a little bit because one of your business partners, a man named Bill Huff, reached out to me because he really wanted to get in touch with my father, who, as I'm sure you know, is a huge fan of nitric oxide. And so I uh, basically brokered the phone call, made it happen. And while I was listening to the conversation that you were having with my father, I was like, holy smokes, uh, I've got to get this guy on the Plant Strong podcast because he is probably the foremost authority uh, on the planet on, on nitric oxide uh, and everything about nitric oxide, which um, my father refers to as the, the magic molecule. I think you refer to it as the magic molecule. And it seems like most Americans don't know what it is, what it does, how important it is to disease prevention. So I'd love to spend the next 30 minutes or so with you talking about your, um, what you've discovered since plunging yourself into the, uh, the study of nitric oxide and how our listeners at home can, can benefit from, from this knowledge, what they can do to increase their nitric oxide production, make sure that they're not um, somehow um, disrupting the NO production and things of that nature. So for starters... Um, what is nitric oxide? Yeah, it's a very good question, and it's, it's recognized in the scientific and medical community as one of the most important molecules produced in humans. So it's a gas that has a half-life of less than one second, but it's produced in the lining of the blood vessels where it regulates blood flow and oxygen delivery, and it's responsible for maintaining normal blood pressure. Uh, it's a neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. It's how our immune system fights off invading pathogens. So when you lose the ability to make this critical magic molecule, a lot of things go wrong. So you lose, your blood pressure goes up, you lose the regulation of blood flow, you develop erectile dysfunction, vascular dysfunction, you develop uh, you, cognitive disorders, so the neurotransmitter function in the, in the central nervous system is lost. And then you become somewhat immunocompromised because your immune system can't generate nitric oxide to fight off some pathogens, whether it's bacteria, viruses, or fungal infections. So that's kind of the basis of what nitric oxide is and does. And um, so, I mean, if this is um, considered one of the most important medical discoveries in the last 100 years, why is it that if we were to go, you know, talk to, let's say we went down to Whole Foods Market, right? And we asked 100 people, do you know what nitric oxide is? I bet you 90 would say, I have no idea. Are you talking about the laughing gas at the, at the you <laughs> know, right. right at the dentist? Or you, uh, they don't know. Um, I, mean, so, I mean, why do you think that is? <laughs> 
Well, historically, we know that it takes, on average, 17 years for new discoveries to become so-called standard of care or made aware to the public. We're about 20 years after the Nobel Prize was awarded and probably 30 years after the discovery of nitric oxide. So even that is a little bit slow based on the average. And I think the reason that is is that clinicians don't use this as part of their initial screening. There's no labs that you can go. So if you, you can't go to your physician and say, hey, doc, what are my nitric oxide levels? He can tell you your vitamin D levels, your cholesterol, yep. all that. But there's no commercial labs that will tell you what your nitric oxide levels are. So that's number one. And then number two, there's really no nitric oxide-based therapies on the market that even if they did diagnose nitric oxide deficiency, there's really nothing on the market in form of drug therapy that corrects this. So one thing I've learned is that physicians don't like to diagnose something they can't treat. And then number two, that really we've been slow in developing drug-based drug therapies that correct nitric oxide deficiency. Now, is there a way of, if I wanted to go down and figure out a way to measure the nitric oxide that I have, you know, coursing throughout my body, is there a test or something that I can do? Yeah, that was a question that we were faced with over 10 years ago when we developed a nitric oxide technology that we brought to market. And that was the number one question. How do I know if I need this? And there was really no standard lab, so I developed a salivary test strip. Hmm. And so this is a colorimetric, semi-quantitative test that you just apply your saliva to the end of this test strip, and it's some old chemistry that if it turns dark pink, you know that your body's making sufficient nitric oxide. If it doesn't turn colors, then it tells us that your body's nitric oxide deficient. So that's kind of a quick point of care. Um, is it pretty accurate? It is It is pretty accurate. So if, if you don't turn that strip pink, then your body is nitric oxide deficient. There is no false negative. But what it doesn't tell us is why your body is nitric oxide deficient. Right. But then we can start to interrogate these different pathways and figure out exactly what's going on in your body and then take the steps to correct that. But there are some false positives. So, for instance, and we see this quite often, that a patient is clinically sick. They have high blood pressure. They have erectile dysfunction. They have diabetes, and they're just sick. But yet mm. they spit on the test strip, and it turns dark pink. Mm. Well, that tells us then that the clinical symptoms actually outweigh the biochemical test. And what we're finding is that these patients who are clinic, who, who show all the hallmark clinical symptoms of nitric oxide deficiency, but the test strip is dark pink, that they probably got an active oral infection mm-hmm. that may be symptomatic or asymptomatic because there's a local activation of the immune system that's generating a lot of nitric oxide either on the peridot, perid, uh, gingival tissue, whether it's gingivitis or periodontitis, or they've got an active infection. Mm. So that's a local immune response. It's not really reflecting systemic bioavailability. Um, so you, you talk about, <clears throat> in one of your several books, about how as we, we age, our nitric oxide production typically decreases. Why, why is that? <clears throat> well, there's two ways the body makes nitric oxide. And these are discoveries over the past probably 20, mm. 25 years. The first pathway is through an enzyme that's found in the lining of the blood vessels. And so that enzyme is called nitric oxide synthase. It's found in endothelial cells. And that's really the age-related production mechanism that declines the older we get. So we know that usually we lose about 10 to 12% of that per decade. So by the time we're 40 or 50 years old, we only have about 50% of the nitric oxide we had when we were younger. And so that's bona fide, verified, scientific data. And there are a number of things. So that's on average. 
I should say. But we now know that as these new um, diagnostic or medical devices come to market that tell us our vascular age, we're now seeing, you know, 18 to 20-year-old kids with a vascular age of a 50 or 60-year-old. And to the contrary, we're seeing 50 or 60-year-old people with a vascular age of a 20 or 30-year-old. So just because you don't want to follow the average, because the average person in America, right. I'm not interested in being average. The average person is overweight, sick, yep. broke, and unable to exercise or perform to their full potential. So we have to figure out how do we get away from or deviate from that average. For and sure. so the older we get, so the standard cardiovascular risk factors, smoking decreases nitric oxide production, um, eating uh, you know, an inflammatory diet, processed foods, uh, things like that cause endothelial dysfunction. Um, so all those standard cardiovascular risk factors lead to a decrease in nitric oxide production. Sedentary lifestyle. So that's the pathway that gets less and less with age. But this backup redundant pathway that we can use through diet, primarily through a plant-based diet, yeah. green leafy vegetables that are enriched in inorganic nitrate, we've recognized a pathway in humans that can utilize the nitrate to serially reduce it down to nitric oxide. But so plant-based diet is important. It's good, provides benefit, but there are a number of steps in that pathway that are required for patients to get the benefit of a plant-based diet. I should say a a nitric oxide benefit of a plant-based diet. Right. So there's, so you're saying there's a number of steps that are required when you're eating, let's just say, plant strong, right. right? A lot of a lot of green leafies. You're a huge fan of, right? I am. Um, and 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 what are some of those steps so that our listeners can maximize those steps? Well, there's <clears throat> there's many that we're learning many caveats to this. So number one, we've quantified the amount of nitrate in green leafy vegetables, both conventionally grown and organically grown. And what we we published this, I think, in 2015. But we found that there are regional differences. So if you bought celery or kale or broccoli in Dallas versus New York, L.A., Raleigh, or Chicago, there's as much as a 100-fold difference in the amount of nitrate in that green vegetable. That's kind of frustrating. So it's farming practices. It's the amount of nitrogen in the soil. It's the time of harvest. There are many things. And so those are conventionally grown. And then if we also tested these against organically grown vegetables— which everybody thinks is good. They're good because they're free of pesticides, right, herbicides, right. and all that. But the problem is we found that they have about 10 times less nitrate than conventionally grown. Why is that? Well, because I think to get an organic label, there's restrictions on nitrogen-based fertilizers you put in the soil. So you can add compost, you can add manure, all right. this, but the very, there's no standardization of nitrogen in the soil. So when soils become depleted in nitrogen, then there's less nitrogen for the plant to take up there's less nitrate in that vegetable when you eat it. Mm. So organic is good that it's eliminating some bad things, but organic is not so good in the fact that it's very difficult to eat enough organic vegetables to yeah. get sufficient nitrate to fuel this nitric oxide pathway. So that's one. There's no standardization. So just because you're eating a lot of kale or broccoli or celery doesn't necessarily mean you're getting sufficient nitrate yeah. to produce the vascular effects of nitric oxide. So that's one. That's a huge problem. There's a whole field of agronomy that has to do better on standardizing that process. And then number two, nit- know, it would be nice to know, wouldn't it, if um, you know when I'm picking up my uh, <clears throat> my bunch of kale, right? 
if there was a sign that let me know, you know, roughly how much nitric oxide was was in this. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's really nitrate is the the stable okay, so, quantifiable sorry, sorry. Yes, molecule. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, nitrate. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, I think there's a way that, that there has to be some standardization of that because the other important thing is that without many other nutrients, micronutrients and vitamins that are assimilated into vegetables require nitrogen. And so if the soil is deficient in nitrate, that vegetable is going to be deficient in nitrate, but it's also going to be deficient in things like chromium, manganese, magnesium, yep. these trace minerals. Uh, so that's a way that you could standardize, obviously, the nutrient density of a lot of these vegetables. Hmm. So that's number one. It's a high variability on yeah. the vegetables you eat. And then number two, nitrate is inert in humans. So humans do not have the genetic or enzymatic capacity to metabolize nitrate into nitric oxide. So this is 100% dependent upon bacteria, hmm. primarily oral bacteria, and some gastrointestinal bacteria that we're finding as we go from the mouth all the way down to the anus. We, we can interrogate this system. But here's the problem. There's 200 million Americans that wake up every morning and use an antiseptic mouthwash. And that is doing more harm than good. I think it's with good intent because people don't want the people wake up with bad breath. But, you know, we've published the facts that when you use a mouthwash, your blood pressure goes up. And this is a fundamental problem in American society because two out of three Americans have an elevation in blood pressure. And that's yeah. the number one modifiable risk factor for heart disease. So the fact that you use mouthwash and your blood pressure goes up told us that there's an important connection between mm. the oral microbiome and systemic blood flow and blood pressure regulation. And then the other thing is, you know, another 200 million Americans are on an antibiotic at any given time in the year. So systemic antibiotics kill the, the good bacteria. Right. So this two-electron reduction of nitrate to nitric oxide, or nitrite, that happens in the oral cavity is disrupted by antibiotics and mouthwash. Which more so, than 50% of Americans are on at any given time. That's right. So you can be doing all the things that you're supposed to do. In fact, I was on the doctor's show a couple of months ago where we recognized that if you use mouthwash, you actually lose the vascular benefits of exercise. So think about this. You could be doing everything that we've known has been healthy for yeah. hundreds of years. Moderate exercise and a plant-based diet. Yeah. But if you're using mouthwash, you're not going to get any of the vascular benefits of either of those. So that's a fundamental, I think, groundbreaking right. observation. And I think it's the reason that some people respond to a plant-based diet and they can lower their blood pressure. Other people, you don't see any change right. in blood right. pressure. Right. That's fascinating. Um so what is, is the solution there then when it comes to the mouthwash? Uh, just, you know, brush your teeth. Can you brush your teeth? Is there anything with fluoride? No, that, I'm that... a big proponent of brushing your teeth. I yeah. yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> Brushing gonna... your teeth, but you have to use a fluoride-free toothpaste. because Fluoride-free flu... toothpaste. Yeah, because fluoride is an antiseptic antimicrobial. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, and it's also a neurotoxin. But so, yeah, I tell people, brush your teeth, brush your tongue. And the bugs that we're interested in that are responsible for this are on the yeah. dorsal part of the tongue. So it's long meaning what? Mean the very back of the, the back tongue, of the near tongue. the gag reflex. Okay. So you can brush your tongue, but just don't gag yourself <laughs> when you're doing that. Yeah. Um, so that's an important consideration. And then the other huge problem is, so that, that gets us from nitrate to nitrite. To get us from nitrite to nitric oxide requires stomach acid. And we've got over 200 million Americans that are using antacids. That's just prescription proton pump inhibitors. That's not counting. It's very difficult to quantify the amount of over-the-counter purchases for things like Prevacid, Prilosec, 
um, these antacids for people that have reflux disease. And so does that then uh, wipe, out, wipe out the uh, gastrointestinal? Uh, you completely eliminate the blood pressure lowering effects of both nitrate and nitrite. Yeah. And these drugs also further inhibit the vascular production of NO. So if you're on an antacid, particularly a proton pump inhibitor like omeprazole, those are the first they were prescription-only drugs. Now you can buy them over the counter. But those basically shut down nitric oxide production from both pathways. And now we have an egg. We, we've known for probably five or six years that people who have been on antacids for three to five years have about a 35% higher incidence of heart attack and stroke. Hmm. And no one made that connection because what in the hell does stomach acid have to do with heart attack and stroke? Well, now we know it's a nitric oxide-related phenomenon. Wow. So 200 million people use antacids. 200 million people use proton pumping or uh, mouthwash. Another 200 million people are using antibiotics. That's more than the population of the U.S. Now, there's some overlap in those, obviously. Yep. Yep. But what that tells us is that no wonder, it's not a surprise to me, that cardiovascular disease remains the number one killer of men and women worldwide. Uh, it's not surprising to me that two out of three Americans have an elevation in blood pressure. Yeah. Over 50% over the men over the age of 40 report some degree of erectile dysfunction. It's a vascular problem. It's loss of nitric oxide. I think the numbers are probably close to 75 or 80%. And that's over 40? Over the age of 40. Over the age of 40. And if I'm not mistaken, the one area of the uh, male anatomy that has more endothelial cells per square inch than any other is the, is the penis. Yeah, so to get an erection, that's basically an engorgement of blood flow. To get blood flow, you have to have a dilation of those blood vessels. To have a dilation of the blood vessels, you have to be able to make nitric oxide. If you can't make nitric oxide, none of that happens. Right. And it's the same thing. It's not just men. It's the women in the clitoris. It's a highly vascularized organ, and for women to have an orgasm, they've got to have an increase in pressure. That increase in pressure comes from an increase in blood flow. That increase in blood flow comes from nitric oxide. If you can't make nitric so, oxide, so, none of that happens. So let me ask you, doctor. So let's say that I was a 48-year-old male coming to you with uh, erectile dysfunction. Um, I'm currently eating the standard American diet. I'm using mouthwash. I'm on antacids, a little bit of antibiotics, you know. Um, what, what prescription would you give me to try and get, uh, get back my, you know, my virility? Well, there's no prescription that can overcome physiology, right? Prescription drugs are typically inhibitors of certain biochemical reaction or stimulators of some enzyme that's probably not working. So what we have to do, and and no matter what the clinical presentation is, my philosophy is that chronic disease is caused by two things and two things only. Number one, your body's missing something that it needs. And number two, your body's exposed to something that it doesn't need. So then we have to just... Go off the list. Okay, if you're taking mouthwash, you have to stop. Yep. If you're taking antacids, you have to stop. If you're taking any of these things that disrupt nitric oxide, if you're not getting up and moving and having physical exercise, yep. then you have to get your body moving. So that's kind of the process of eliminating the things that are disrupting nitric oxide production. Now that those kind of unlock the brakes, what can we do to stimulate endogenous NO production? So then I would say you have to you have to exercise. I would recommend a plant-based diet that's enriched in inorganic nitrate or you know there's some technology on the market that's very effective supplementation that's been shown in peer-reviewed uh, randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials to restore nitric oxide production so that's kind of the 
the path that I would take. And mm-hmm. once you restore nitric oxide production, you, 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 you gain the ability to regulate blood flow. Erections get better in both men and women. Blood pressure becomes more normalized. Yep. And so everything works better. If you can't get oxygen and nutrients to every cell in the body, that cell is going to become dysfunctional. And when those cells become dysfunctional, the organ and the tissue fail, and that's the basis for disease. Let's, uh, let's back up just for a second. Um, what in the world got you so passionate about nitric oxide that you made this your kind of, you know, up to now your life's work? <laughs> that's right. It's all I've done in my 20 years of academia. Um, it happened when I was a student at LSU School of Medicine back, I guess, in 2000. This was a couple of years after the Nobel Prize was awarded. And Lou Ignaro, one of the gentlemen who shared the Nobel Prize, came and gave a lecture to the student body at, <clears throat> at the LSU Medical School. And really told us the story of his discovery of nitric oxide. And then I had a chance to have dinner with him that night and ask some fundamental questions about what is this nitric oxide molecule and why is it important? And, you know, he he told me that he was still quite surprised that a Nobel Prize had been awarded, number one, and then number two, that he actually <laughs> shared the Nobel Prize. But that he, we didn't know, and this was, I guess, right at 2000, 2001, there were no technologies to detect or quantify nitric oxide in humans or even animals for that matter. And then number two, no one knew how to correct this insufficiency. And so he thought, you know, there's kind of this Mm. great blue ocean out there of a lot of unknowns. And for me, that was eye-opening and important because I recognized then that if we could figure out how the body makes nitric oxide, what goes wrong in people that can't make it, and then hopefully have the technology to restore or repair these pathways in the human body. That if what he was telling me nitric oxide did and was, it would transform public health. And so you kind of took that as a challenge uh, to go forth and uh, find those answers. Yeah, so basically all my Ph.D. work was on analytical methods to detect and quantify nitric oxide in biological systems. And once we accomplished that, then we also had the tools to start to develop nitric oxide-based therapies. That led me to Boston University Medical Center as a fellow, spent a couple of years there, and then I was recruited by Fred Murad, one of the other gentlemen who shared the Nobel Prize, to join faculty at UT Medical School in Houston. And so that was kind of, that was important because Dr. Murad had a drug discovery program at UT. He had won the Nobel Prize. This was about, I guess, eight years after he won the Nobel Prize. So we were tasked with trying to develop nitric oxide-based therapies and generate. I found it fascinating because Dr. Murad had won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of nitric oxide, but yet he had no methods to detect nitric oxide. Uh-huh. So when I joined faculty there, I had the only instrumentation that could detect and quantify nitric oxide. And so then we got busy and you know found out these compositions of matter that would generate nitric oxide, and we knew how much nitric oxide a normal, healthy human being made over 24 hours, and so we could dial in that level of nitric oxide. Um, and we refined this over a period of, uh, I don't know, 10 years or so, and really got to a technology that did two things. Number one, if your body can't make nitric oxide, we do it for you. And then number two, it really fixes the reason your body can't make nitric oxide, even in the face of antiseptics or antibiotics. Uh, so it overcomes a lot of the deficiencies or a lot of the hurdles that we as ourselves put put on ourselves because of the things we do. Hmm. But I think still getting back to the physiology and biochemistry of nitric oxide, 
the best approach is to eliminate or remove the things in your life or body mm-hmm. that are disrupting mm-hmm. nitric oxide production and then giving the body what it needs to make its own nitric oxide. That's the best approach. There's no better mm-hmm. safety profile than that, and it works. Um, so you, I think you mentioned earlier on the uh, endothelial cells. My father is a huge fan of the endothelial cells, yeah, very important. the endothelium, um, which, as you, I mean, explained, I think is the innermost lining of all of our blood vessels, right? Um, is this is this where a lot of our um, nitric oxide is produced from the endothelial cells? It is. So we, we've quantified this. So about fifty percent of our nitric oxide comes from the endothelial cells, and as I mentioned, that's the fifty percent of that goes away with time, and so that's the reason for age-related cardiovascular disease. So can I just that? So sure. let me stop you. So I'm a five-year-old, right? Just by being a human being and having, you know, endothelial cells, you know, coursing throughout my body, is it, are they just naturally producing nitric oxide uh, just all day long? As long as that five-year-old is eating a decent diet, is active. But if you've got an obese five-year-old that's sedentary, that's eating chips and cookies and sodas all day, yeah. He has probably the endothelial health of a 50 or 60 year old. So that tells us really the damning effects of lifestyle on endothelial health biology. Okay. And so let's say I'm that five year old that is eating really an atrocious standard American diet. Um, how quickly can I turn it around by, by, you know, um, by not disrupting the pathways and eating the right things and all that? Can I turn it around super quick? Yeah, it, usually it happens in a matter of days. I mean, our body is very resilient in the fact that it wants to do its job. These cells want to do their job. They just need, you have to give them what they need to do their right. job and get the stuff out of the way that's inhibiting them to do their job. So when you change your diet, I mean, it's similar to smoking. You can stop smoking and see the benefits within 24, 48 hours later in terms of how you feel, how you're breathing. Right. And a lot of that are vascular-related effects. So same thing with diet. If you eliminate all the postprandial inflammation that occurs from eating a lot of processed yep. nasty foods that causes endothelial dysfunction, then you don't get that inflammatory response and inflammation is the key driver of disease. So um, as I'm sure you may or may not know, we are, we are not fans of, of, of meat, right? Uh, animal byproducts, you know, we feel like they're, uh, they're inflammatory, they, uh, they, they injure uh, our bodies at a multitude of levels. Are you are you a fan of animal products? I mean, if I came into you and I, uh, you know, had um, low nitric oxide, uh, would you say, you know what, go easy on the meat and really bump up the fruits, vegetables, green leafies? Well, for me, it's a balance. I mean, personally, yeah. I'm a meat eater, but before I eat meat, I always eat a salad. And I think these social norms are really preparing the body for this postprandial oxidative stress that occurs from processing animal proteins. Or even, I mean, there's some, some postprandial inflammation and uh, oxidative stress from digesting any, any protein, whether it's plant-based or animal-based. Yeah. The problem with most Americans isn't that they're overeating meat, it's they're under-eating vegetables. And so for me, you get a good mix of micronutrients 
and vitamins from a balanced diet. There are certain things that are in animal products that aren't in uh, plant-based diets. I mean, so you got you got a couple of options. You can supplement what's missing, um, which I think is very important, uh, or eat a eat a balanced diet. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. there is no substitute for a balanced diet and moderate physical exercise. Mm-hmm. People are looking for a pill they can take to overcome that, and yeah, it doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. And it won't exist. Um, so I'd love in in this book, Nitric Oxide, the solution, right? the NO solution, you talk about some really smart methods to increase your nitric oxide production. Um, I'd, I'd love to throw out a couple that you write about, mm-hmm. and then if you could just expand on that. Sure. So the first one you talk about is breathe deeply. Sounds pretty simple. <clears throat> it's Yeah, but, it seems like a simple exercise, right? But I don't think enough people are doing it. Well, again, <laughs> that's very important. But these, the sinus epithelial cells contain this enzyme nitric oxide synthase, just as the endothelial cells in the lining of the blood vessels. So if that enzyme is dysfunctional in the endothelial cells, mm-hmm. the same conditions exist that's going to make it dysfunctional in the epithelial cells. So deep breathing is really not going to give you the optimal nitric oxide effect until you recouple that enzyme and make it functional. So that's number one. Same thing, if you eat a plant-based diet, but you're using mouthwash or antibiotics, you're not going to get the benefit of it. Yeah. It's a very similar analogy. But here's the deal. If you, can, if you know that enzyme is working or you employ the strategies that restore endothelial function, then simply deep breathing through your nose activates the mechanoreceptors on these epithelial cells and generates nitric oxide. And that's why in those patients, simply deep breathing can lower your blood pressure. Can you give me an example, like uh, how often, and am I, I'm breathing in through my nose, out through my mouth? Yeah, if you do that like 10 times, like in a five-second interval, like breathe in for five seconds, hold it for a second, yep. and then exhale for like five to six seconds, you can do that 10 times. That's been shown to be very effective at lowering blood pressure, provided that enzyme is functional that makes nitric oxide. Okay, all right. Um, hydration. Yeah, again, there's no substitute. I mean, if you're volume depleted and your cells are concentrated not just in toxic byproducts, it causes cells to be dysfunctional. So you have to hydrate, but here's the, you have to drink good water. And most water is toxic. Municipal water, I don't recommend anybody drinking municipal water. It's got fluoride in it, it's got chlorine in it, it's got uh, drug metabolites in it. So you're getting a lot of estrogens in the water. Uh, So public water is made to basically for safety and antimicrobial. Yeah. They don't test for a lot of these drug metabolites that we urinate or defecate out that people are taking. What do you recommend? I, do, I recommend, highly recommend a home water purification system that takes out the bad stuff, the chloride, fluorine, the drug metabolites, and basically puts back the trace minerals that's naturally found in water. All right. And then do uh, you recommend a certain quantity of water, or does it just depend upon how active you are? And I think it, yeah, everybody's different. It's hard to, to make a one-size-fits-all for anything. Yeah. Uh, I'll drink probably a gallon and a half, two gallons of water a day, but I'm active. Uh, I work out. I sit in a sauna, so I sweat, so I have to rehydrate. I'm going to be getting to that. <laughs> uh, you say, I mean, again, these, these are all sound like pretty simple solutions here, but so we started with breathe deeply, then we had uh, hydration, good sleep. Good sleep is important. Sleep is when our body heals. 
And so if we don't get good sleep, our body doesn't have the chance to heal and it doesn't perform as optimally as it should. And then the other important component of sleep is people with obstructive sleep apnea. Hugely increases your risk of heart attack and stroke. Mm -hmm. And so that pathway that makes nitric oxide in the lining of the blood vessels requires oxygen. And if you're hypoxic during your sleep because of your, you're not breathing, then your body can't make nitric oxide. And it puts you at risk for cardiovascular disease. So again, there is a bona fide mechanism of action of why using proton pump inhibitors leads to heart attack and stroke. There's a bona fide mechanism of why having sleep apnea leads to heart attack and stroke. It's all around nitric oxide. Um, do you have any recommendations for people to get a really good night's sleep? Most people, 85% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. Magnesium's involved, I think, 187 biochemical reactions. And magnesium is calming. So I tell people, take 500 milligrams of magnesium every night before you go to bed. If you're like most Americans, you're deficient, so it's, it's going to provide you a missing nutrient. And two, it's calming, uh, so it'll help you sleep better. Hmm. And then you have to turn off your phones, turn off exposure to lights, artificial lights, and that's not how our bodies evolved to sleep yeah yep. we have to have a, a down period to prepare our body for sleep i i love a cool environment i oh, also I love, sleep I with also a love 65 it 66 yeah. degrees at night yeah yeah um and you, you you talked about this earlier a little bit but you know uh good bacteria yep and i think that maybe around that would be everything that people are doing inadvertently uh, with the mouthwash, with the fluoride toothpaste, with the antacids that are basically wiping out the good bacteria and preventing um, that, uh, what would you call it, that reaction dis- to occur? Yeah, it's or- dysbiosis. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. what I mean, we've, we've become a germaphobic society, especially now in this age of coronavirus and all these rapid yeah. uh, epidemics of infectious bacteria or viruses. So everybody's using mouthwash, everybody's using an antibacterial soap, people bathe two to three times a day, no one sweats, no one gets dirty, and there's consequences to that. Because the bacteria that live in and on our body outnumber our own human cells 10 to 1. And most of these bacteria are in and on our body to do things that we as humans can't do or haven't yet evolved to do. So there's always collateral damage of this. So yeah, you want to you know, be free from infectious and pathogenic bacteria. But the collateral damage of that is you're killing the good guys. Mm-hmm. And the good guys are providing your body with something that it needs, right? Yeah. And so yeah. You, have, you can't do this. I mean, like, like if I get septic, I want an antibiotic. I think it's, it's a life-saving procedure and a very important discovery. But overusing antibiotics, using mouthwash, using antibacterial uh, soaps, lotions, bathing two to three times a day, there are consequences to that. Mm-hmm. And it's known that people who grow up in a rural environment are have less allergies. They're typically more healthy than people who live in an yeah. uh, urban environment. And so the, I live out on uh, about 15 minutes way out in the woods on the hundreds of acres, and I'm quite observative. And so I've noticed, you know, growing up around horses and cows and dogs, that if you bathe your dog or your horse, what's the first thing they do? Roll in the dirt. They go roll in the dirt, <laughs> yeah. right? Because yeah. they've recognized innately that you've just removed a lot of the good bacteria from their body through these soaps and shampoos. So what they do, yeah. they go out and re-inoculate themselves right. in the dirt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's a very important observation. Yeah. And now we've got people who, and sweating, I think, is a uh, overlooked uh, thing. No one sweats anymore. We 
get in our air-conditioned house and drive our air-conditioned car to our air-conditioned office and come home. One of the main routes of exposure of toxins is through sweating. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we had a woman uh, on the first season of, of Plant Strong, uh, Dr. Robin Shutkan, who is a gastroenterologist, and her motto is to eat clean, live dirty. So yeah, I like that. Kind of a little bit like what you were just saying there. As Dr. Bryant says, dogs and other animals innately know how to give their bodies what they need by rolling around in the dirt. The same goes for their food, which is why we're proud to partner this season with Wild Earth. Animals know better and they deserve better, which is why Wild Earth dog food is packed with only clean protein sources and easily digestible ingredients for superior gut health. No junky meat products here. Scroll down to view the show notes or visit plantstrongpodcast.com and click on the Wild Earth banner to claim your exclusive offer for up to 50% off your dog food purchase. If I'm aging, let's say I'm in my 60s, 70s, but I'm also eating this way and, and eating, let's say, you know, my dad's protocol for his patients is six to seven, basically fist-sized handfuls of some sort of green leaf, dark green leafies mm-hmm. every single day. Now, he, I don't believe, ever had the knowledge about, you know, organic versus conventional, right, and the difference there. But let's say, you're, let's say you were doing the conventional, you're doing everything correct. Um, if I'm 60, 70, is there the potential that I could have the nitric <clears throat> oxide production of a healthy 20, 30-year-old? That is very possible, provided you're not doing the things that disrupt that metabolism into nitric oxide. Right. So it's very po- And I think that's the reason that you see such a disparity in 70 to 80-year-old people. You get some 70, 80-year-olds who are rolling in a wheelchair on oxygen, completely horrible quality of life to the contrary you got 60 70 year old guys who are out playing golf every day in fact i just played golf with a 85 year old in west palm beach and he still drives the ball 340 yards wow remarkable (laughs) but he's active he eats a good diet he lives a good clean life and that's the difference so for me it's not about the uh, the quantity of life it's the quality of life and i think if you do the right things you can have both right so you mentioned this 84 year old driving the the golf ball 340 yards (laughs) Um, so as an athlete, right, uh, I've been an athlete my whole life. Um, <clears throat> do you feel like, um, I guess it's nitrates and nitrites that can produce nitric oxide in me would be considered a performer, a performance enhancer? No doubt about it. I uh-huh. mean, the clinical published randomized controlled trials tell us that. In fact, your ability to generate nitric oxide, which is measured by plasma levels of nitrite, actually predicts how well you can perform. And so if you supplement this or titrate your blood levels up of this, it's been shown to enhance performance. And so there's a couple of ways to do this. And so, you know, when you begin to exercise in young, healthy people or well-trained athletes, when you begin to exercise, that stimulates nitric oxide production. That's why exercise is medicine. So it's bi-directional. It's bi-directional. But here's, here's, yeah. there's a critical uh, <clears throat> cross point here that when you reach your anaerobic threshold for the 
cells in the blood vessels to make nitric oxide, you need oxygen. So when you run out of oxygen when you're exercising, which is the anaerobic threshold, yeah. then nitric oxide production in the lining of the blood vessels shuts down. So then that's when you run out of fuel, typically. You switch to this anaerobic metabolism. Lactic acid builds up, and that's the whole sequel of, of performance. Uh, but what we've recognized that if you can titrate your levels up prior, that when that pathway of nitric oxide stops working, then this reservoir of nitrate and nitrite can be reduced to nitrite specifically under low oxygen. So you've got a buffer system, mm. and that's the buffer system that's really the difference between winning and losing, especially in the Olympics. So have you, have you quantified this as far as, let's say I've got a, you know, a big uh, workout tomorrow that I want to get ready for. Should I, you know, how many milligrams I want to do, like and how many hours before and how many days before do I want to be ramping it up? So if you're using, so we have a, a technology that actually generates nitric oxide gas, and we published this in a peer-reviewed journal, that three minutes before a time trial on a bicycle, that if you take that 20 minutes before your exercise, you can increase your time by 3%. That's phenomenal. I mean, it's truly the difference between first and last. But if you, and, but again, it depends on the type of activity you're going to do. So the yeah. metabolic requirements of a time trial are much different than, say, resistance training or high-intensity high interval training. So there's protocols being developed now. And so if you want to utilize nitrate as a substrate, that takes 90 to 120 minutes to go through this enterosalivary circuit to be activated by the bacteria, to swallow it, generate nitric oxide in the uh, lumen of the stomach. So for that protocol, if it's just nitrate, then you have to take this about an hour and a half to two hours prior. Right. But if you're using mouthwash, if you're using antibiotics, if you can't make stomach acid, then yeah. you're not going to get the performance-enhancing benefits of that. But nitric oxide or nitride per se, you can take five to ten minutes before, and that provides that buffer or reservoir that will allow you to extend that anaerobic threshold and perform better than your competitors. Hmm. Um, so do, do you know our... our it, to the best of your knowledge, do you know many sports teams or athletes that are that are supplementing with some sort of, you know, beet powder or beet juices and stuff like that? We have. I developed a commercial beet product and a technology, and we have close to 200 sports teams that use it, both professional and NCAA, from NFL, all NCAA programs, including University of Texas here, uh, MLB teams, NBA teams, hockey teams. Wow. In fact, the entire U.S. Olympic team in 2016 was using our technology. So uh, the cat's out of the bag. Cat's out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> At first, it was, as, as in any competitive, people that were using our products didn't want their competitors to know. Right. But then it became aware because these sports dietitians speak Yep. go to these conferences, and then they let the cat out of the bag. And then we've got these other sports dietitians that go, hey, we mm -hmm. heard so-and-so was using this. We need this. And we hear that it, it, it's a game changer. How important do you think it is that people, let's say, um, you know, like, again, I'll, I'll refer to my father and his protocol where he likes his patients to do six servings of green leafies a day, and he likes them to chew them to masticate them, not to, you know, throw them in a blender and uh, drink them in a, as a smoothie. Do you think there's benefit to 
chewing oh, as opposed no to doubt, drinking? No doubt. So there's several benefits. Number one, you just increase the surface area of the food particles you're digesting. So you get better breakdown in the stomach and in the gastrointestinal tract. When you're chewing. When you're chewing. Yeah. yeah. So you're breaking them down into smaller particles. But then number two is you're increasing the resident time and the activation time for these bacteria to utilize the nitrate. So in that particular protocol, you wouldn't necessarily have to wait 90 minutes until right. the enterosalivary circuit puts it back in your salivary glands. There's enough resident time in there. So if you're chewing for, say, 60 or 90 seconds, those bacteria have that substrate available right then and there to start respiring on it. So it almost primes the pump, if you will. Right, right. Well, um so I think that I read that you are such a fan of, of NO, nitric <laughs> oxide, that in your um, estimation, it should be considered a vitamin, right? Well, I think, yeah, so there's ways Or, or put, to... on, put on par with, with a vitamin, right? Because if, you if, if you're not getting enough, it causes the d- diseases, and it sounds like, I mean... If well, it, we look at the, yeah. If you look at the definition of a vitamin that was yeah. defined, I think by Casimir Funk back in many hundreds of years ago, that it's produced naturally in the body, yep. or found naturally in certain foods, and deficiencies cause specific disease, and if you replete it, the disease goes away. So the best example is vitamin C. If you don't get enough vitamin C, you get scurvy. You can completely overcome scurvy by giving it back. Yep. That's the best best definition of a vitamin. We think. And there's evidence to support that if your body can't make nitric oxide, so number one, it's naturally produced. Number two, you can get it from your diet. But if your body's deficient in nitric oxide, you're subject to a host of chronic disease, including heart disease and stroke, number one killer of men and women worldwide. Mm. And it's been shown that if you can replete and recapitulate nitric oxide-based signaling, you don't get cardiovascular disease, and many age-related diseases go away. Yeah. So it's not, I mean... I don't want to trivialize scurvy or beriberi or things like that, but deficiency of nitric oxide causes the burden of diseases that face Americans and people worldwide today. Yeah. But I think it's not nitric oxide. The end goal is to get to nitric oxide. So vitamins are typically stable, right? And so I think we've always looked at nitrate as kind of what we would call a pre-pro drug or pre-pro vitamin. Mm-hmm. Nitrite would be kind of the pre-vitamin, and then nitric oxide is the active agent. And so that's, and there's evidence for that in physiology. Mm-hmm. You know, we need vitamin D, but vitamin D is then metabolized into by the bacteria in the gut to perform the active form or activated by ultraviolet light. Mm. Um, same thing with thyroid hormone. I mean, our body produces T4, or we're given T4, allow the body to convert it, but it's an inactive hormone. So nitrate would be like T4. Nitrite would be like T3 active hormone, yeah. and nitric oxide would be T2. So there's, that's how the body works. And so this isn't foreign to physiology. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what we have to do is really understand how can we replete this activity through the diet, optimize our own systems to utilize that to generate nitric oxide. That includes eating a good diet, but eliminating the bad stuff that's in our body that's inhibiting this metabolism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I want, I want to show you this photo. I don't know if you've seen this or not. This is from my father's book. Yes, I read that book. Okay. And he basically here, this is, you know, one of his, his patients. You can see this is the left anterior descending artery. And I'll put this in the show notes yep. um, on the podcast for, for people that are listening so you can see it. But, you know, this is two and a half years later. 
And this is before my father kind of knew about nitric oxide, because this, as you can see here, this is in 1996 to 1999. Right. And my question to you is, do you think that this reversal was able to happen um, just because he was eliminating, you know, kind of all the, the at the time, the the foods that he believed were injuring the endothelial cells. Right. And then just because this is such a heavy <clears throat> fruit and vegetable-based diet and obviously green leafies, he was able to basically, you know, uh, metabolize away the plaque formations and then, you know, restore the body's ability to produce nitric oxide. I mean... Yeah, look, you can't... I don't argue with data. Obviously, yep. there's there's... Data are open to different interpretations, but the data are the data, and the fact that you can reverse heart disease with this is very profound. So what I like to do is I like to start with things that work yep. and then work backwards and figure out the mechanism to where you can make it actually better. Mm. And I think that's why basic science today in today's culture and academia doesn't work because people try to find their favorite protein or favorite molecule or favorite enzyme and make it fit into a biological, physiological system. Yeah. And it's like putting a square peg in a round hole. But I think if you start with what works and work backwards, I think to answer your question, there are a number of things that are happening there. Number one, when you eat a plant-based diet, nitric oxide is a very important component to that. But there's also other micronutrients that were probably missing in their previous diet that yeah. they're now getting. But to me, it goes back to the basis of everything that I consider. It's your body heals when it's given what's missing and you eliminate what's inhibiting the process. Yeah. So I think a plant-based diet probably provides a lot of that benefit. Not only are you getting a lot of fiber and other micronutrients in there, but provided your body has the systems intact, it's going to utilize the nitrate from that plant-based diet to generate nitric oxide. We know nitric oxide can reverse plaque deposition, revert to uh, lead to reverse lipid transport, clean up blood vessels, make them pliable, functional. Right, right. And it, it, it would explain that data 100%. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, I think that they should rename nitric oxide to Nirvana, right? Instead of Nirvana, <laughs> Nirvana. I mean, right. I mean, it sounds like it's the, uh, I mean, it is, it, it is, it is miraculous. And, uh, I think more people, you know, need, need this information, know what they can do to make sure they're not disrupting, uh, the NO pathways and doing everything they can to, bump up their their production of it um i just i think it's really phenomenal that you have devoted your your life's work to um you know to no um i think you what we, what we want to do is we want, we want to say yes to, to no, no right yes to no yeah <laughs> you know i think all of us looked for a profession that we can change people's lives i mean i think a lot of people are motivated by that um I think very few people actually have the opportunity to do that in a real sense world. You know, yeah, we can yeah. we can fake ourselves into saying that. So I feel very fortunate and blessed to be in this field for 20 years and to contribute to the knowledge base of this. But, you know, I think this is certainly one of those scenarios where what you don't know can kill you. And it really doesn't have to be that way. This is very simple, common sense stuff. But I think it's education, lack of education, lack of awareness that... Everybody has a good intent for the most part in doing the things that they do, but we have to recognize the consequences. So I think, again, if we begin to understand and appreciate how the body makes nitric oxide, what are you doing in your daily life that's disrupting this natural production of this molecule? Eliminate that. 
eat a good diet, get some yeah. exercise and sweat. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty simple. We're now four months into this pandemic and I caught up for a few minutes with Dr. Brian just last week over Zoom about what he's doing as we speak using nitric oxide to treat symptoms of COVID-19, especially in our most vulnerable populations. No doubt you're going to be hearing more about this subject in the very near future. Nathan, it's good to see you again. I think the last time that, that I, we spoke, it was in person uh, in, in Austin, and it was pre-COVID-19. Uh, actually, it was the very beginning of February, before this was even, uh, was even really being, being talked about. Uh, a lot has happened since then. What's going on in your world? Well, thanks, Rip. It's good to see you, even though it's uh, virtual. But yeah, we're, we're living in a certainly different time than it was uh, when we met face-to-face -face for the podcast. But here's what we know, you know, four months into this COVID pandemic is that, you know, it is a serious virus. But what we're recognizing is that there's certain populations that are more vulnerable to infection. And that happens to be the African-American community. Um, and, you know, the, the data to me are really clear because there's been known health disparities in the African-American, even Hispanic population now for probably 50, 60 years, and no one's addressed it. And now it's becoming very apparent with the COVID pandemic because African-Americans are more, seem to be more susceptible to infection. Their rate of hospitalization is, you know, five to six times higher than any other racial or ethnic group. Uh, the severity of disease seems to progress much, much more rapidly. And then the risk of death is anywhere from, you know, some reports it's four to six times higher risk of death. Sometimes it's, you know, some reports are showing 10 times higher risk of death from African-Americans. So here's what's relevant for what we talked about months ago to now is that the health disparities of African-Americans are due to lack of production of nitric oxide. And we're know, we know now know that people that have comorbidities or really symptoms of insufficient nitric oxide production are the ones that suffer the, the worst severity of disease, hospitalization, and death. Mm -hmm. So now we have a clear mechanism with, of why African-Americans are suffering from this, as well as Hispanics, but we're really focused on the African-American population. And now we have ways, and we're actually investigating this. Uh, so we'll, we'll keep in touch and, and keep you tuned to this. But to me, this is very important because no one's addressed the health disparities of African-Americans, despite the fact that we now know a mechanism of action and its loss of nitric oxide production. But now we have a chance to intervene and address this very vulnerable population at a very important time um, in our lifetime. Yeah, no, that's very exciting and very timely. Um, do, do, you have, do you have any thoughts on what it is that, that makes uh, the African-American uh, demographic so vulnerable? Uh, yeah, it is. There's, it's both, it's genetic and lifestyle. So um, there's a known G6PD deficiency in African-Americans is about 10 to 12% penetrance, where in other populations it maybe is less than five. Um, there's salt-sensitive hypertension that seems to be more prevalent in the African-American community. Um, and a lot of it's lifestyle, it's diet. Uh, and so all of those, both from genetic, epigenetic, all the way down to physiological response to these environmental and genetic factors really makes them more susceptible to infection and the severity of disease progresses really, really rapidly. But most importantly, it gives us a chance to intervene and understand this from a, a mechanistic standpoint and really help this, this population of people. Fantastic. So how, uh, how have you been doing uh, over the last three, four months with, uh, with COVID-19? How are you and your family doing? 
But we're doing great. You know, it's, it's been kind of a great reset button for me because prior to this, I was traveling about 140, 150,000 air miles uh, a year, gone every week, traveling, lecturing somewhere. So I've gotten a lot of work done around the ranch. We're, we're as secluded as you come. We're on 800 acres out in the middle of uh, nowhere in, in Texas. And so we're secluded, we're isolated, but we've had fun. We've gotten a lot of work done and it gives me time to spend, uh, give me a chance to spend time with the, the wife and kids. Nice, nice. Well, I really appreciate the uh, the quick update. We're gonna obviously uh, add this into the uh, into the live episode uh, that we have when we were together. But you know, let me just sign out with a new sign off, which is peace. Engine two, nitric oxide. All right. Thanks, Rip. I want to thank Dr. Brian for his groundbreaking and dedicated research for the last 25 years. When cells can't get oxygen organs and tissues fail, and that's the basis for most disease. But by following some of the advice in this episode, especially around chewing your greens on a daily basis, you can reverse this trend and turn your body into a nitric oxide machine. And if you're one of the millions of Americans who rely on antacids, antibiotics, or fluoride on a daily basis, know that there is a better way. There's no prescription or medication that can overcome physiology. And once you restore nitric oxide production, everything works better. Make sure you visit the podcast page at plantstrongpodcast.com to learn more and download some of the key tips from today's jam-packed show. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, Wade Clark, and Carrie Barrett. I want to thank my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Kryle Esselstyn for creating a legacy that will be carried on for generations and being willing to go against the current and trudge upstream to the causation. We are all better for it.